0: Hey everyone, so we have a very special podcast uh, today. Um, as many of you may have heard, uh, you know my dear friend and mentor, Christopher Sells, uh, passed away last summer, and Chris Sells was really um, quite a remarkable leader. He was a mentor to many uh, women and men in the medical device space, and really left a name for himself, not only as uh, an, a real uh, leader and someone who truly believed in doing what's best for the patient but of course he left an impression on, on many people. Uh, he helped companies like Intuitive Surgical and Mazor Robotics take their uh, robotic technology to market and successfully do so in a way that helped impact thousands upon thousands of patients. And of course uh, he, the impression he made on myself and many others uh, really brought out the best in us and helped us elevate ourselves in a way that very few people can. Now, a few years ago, when I was uh, early in my career, uh, podcasts were starting to get bigger. And when I was at Mazor, I decided, hey, you know, I I should interview Chris Sells. And I always told Sells that his advice and wisdom was so profound that he had to write a book one day. So I figured, let me interview him just to get it started. So I sat down at a conference with him and pulled out my phone to interview him. And uh, I've held on to it for many years. And uh, upon his passing, I, I shared it with his lovely wife, Michelle, and she uh, okayed it uh, for it to be released. And so I would like to share this with you. So whether you're in the medical device space or not, I think that you'll gain a lot of value, a lot of wisdom and insight and inspiration from this uh, to- from this interview. Now, before I uh, jump into it or, or let you hear the interview, I want to read a um, uh, a little short piece about Chris um, that his lovely wife Michelle wrote so you understand who he who he was and and his background so Christopher Bondo Sells of Dallas Texas passed away on June 8th on 2019 and it turns out his heart was just too big after all born in Albuquerque New Mexico on June 22nd 1962 but lovingly called Indianapolis his true hometown he graduated from the School of Life and received a degree in TCB, taking care of business, at an early age following the premature deaths of his beloved fathers, William Sells and John Koskovich, and big brother, Joseph Sells. The patriarch of his family at an early age, Christopher Sells set out to make his mark, and by the end of his life, he had become a rare and exceptionally well-respected titan of the medical device industry who led companies like Intuitive Surgical and Mazoor Robotics to great heights. A strong and willing leader with a heart of gold who took great pride in building teams comprised of men and women eager to rise above the status quo and make history. A stickler for details who sought perfection, not because he was a perfectionist, but because he said thousands of times, at the end and beginning of the day, it's really about the patient on the table. Sells cared a lot about people. He relished the opportunity to teach but never got too old to learn a good lesson. He was a bigger-than-life charmer, a visionary, who led by example and by doing so motivated countless colleagues to not only meet but exceed both their professional and personal goals. He was sincere and intentional with his words and his actions, a verifiable, go-to guy, a closer, a true-born leader who never met a stranger or a dilemma he didn't look straight in the eye. He loved fast cars, cooking remarkable meals, and fishing. A man who loved to dig in the dirt, fine-tuning his front yard curb, appealed daily. When he wasn't on the road, that is. But above all else, he was a family man, deeply devoted to being an extraordinary husband, father, son, brother, uncle, cousin, and nephew. And if you were lucky enough to call him your friend, please know that 100% he considered you family. So now... Without further ado, here's the interview with Chris Sells, and if you make it uh, to the end, which I'm sure all of you will, I uh, have prepared a nice collection of Chris Sells-isms, some wonderful quotes and pearls of wisdom that I've collected over the years from uh, my interactions as well as my own colleagues' uh, uh, lessons that they learned from him. So here it is. Enjoy this interview with Chris Sells. We have a very special guest today, uh, someone that I'm personally very close to and had uh, the honor of working with, uh, Christopher Sells. He's the Vice President of New Business at Missouri Robotics. Uh, it's a former company that I used to be at. Uh, I always joke that I feel that Mr. Sells is kind of like uh, my generation's Zig Ziglar, Dale Carney. He's truly a uh, well-seasoned and uh, tenured sales professional and. Very happy to have him on board today to talk. I was lucky to grab him away. So Christopher, you can just tell us a little about yourself. Thank you, Omar. It's a uh, real pleasure to
1: to uh, sit and have a conversation with you today. Um, I, I think that over the years, uh, our interaction, we've had the opportunity to sit together, be it uh, remotely or or in person, and have conversations that, that I hope have been meaningful to you and to your career. I have uh, spent the last 27 years in med device, starting many years ago at the beginning of laparoscopy with U.S. Surgical, spent time at uh, Johnson & Johnson launching a new urology product, and then uh spent a considerable amount of time at the beginning of intuitive surgical launching the da vinci robot and seeing that through a number of iterations uh, growing that team and uh and finally my experience at Mazor robotics from the beginning i was the first employee here and to see the opportunity and the people and the growth of those people in the organization over the last seven years has been a true joy and maybe a, a, a real highlight of my career and having you as one of those people has been uh, really uh, the joy of my life that's that's what is meaningful to me
0: well, it's, it's a big honor and I really appreciate it um, I'll make sure to pay you later for saying that <laughs> So, you know, um, for those those of our listeners that don't know, um, tell us about Mazur Robotics. Who are they? What do they do? So Mazur Robotics is a uh,
1: Israeli-based company uh, founded by two of the brightest people I've ever met, not just uh, the brain trust, but who they are as, as human beings. Um, humble, intelligent, uh, resourceful, remarkable people that have overcome so much to do what they've done. Um, The the company is focused on changing the way that spine and brain surgery are done throughout the world by bringing robotic technology into this space and creating a safer environment for the patient, for the caregiver in the room, uh, a better opportunity for the hospital to maximize their outcomes and Improve their reimbursement scenarios. And uh, today, over the last, well, over the last two days here at NAS, launching a brand new product, the Mazur X, which has truly been the vision uh, of what I wanted to see when I joined some seven years ago.
0: Congratulations, and I'm sure you know it's been a long time coming. So it must feel good to see it that way. It feels great, <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of work got put into it to, for this big day. From everybody, it's uh, it's been
1: an entire team effort, both in the U.S., uh, Israel, and, and, and all over the world, where we have uh, our, our people staff. So it's been a, a really great opportunity, I think, to to mention that we've been able to not only bring this technology forward but also to align ourselves with the biggest name and Spine and that always made the difference. I think finding those correct people is not an easy task and I think that uh, in my experience I have a tendency to surround myself with people that I've worked with in the past. People who have upheld the high standards that I set People that understand what it means to be a medical in the medical device field, and that everything that you do must take into consideration the patient on the table. That is that is the number one goal of anything that uh, I've ever been involved with. How do we impact the patient, their family, their lives? I, I'm proud to say that through all of the products that I've represented uh, over my career that I can truly look back at all of those situations and see the thousands of people that we've helped and the impact to their family, their extended family, their friends um, and, and I think that when you have the opportunity to change the world and change an
0: outlook for any patient you're doing good work sorry I. You know, before I even ask a question I just have to let that settle in and you know, the thing the thing about the industry that i notice noticed is that, you know, of course it's a business, and the number one objective is to make money, but I think the number one priority sometimes gets lost, and that is to, to help people, to help patients ultimately. And, uh, you know, for those of you who've listened, I think you should kind of go back and replay it again, that... The very first thing that sales talks about is helping the patient, and then from there, the doctor and the hospital.
1: If you if you do the right job, Omer, you're you're absolutely correct. If you if you focus on the patient and the outcome for that patient, revenue, money, sales projections, all of those things follow in line. Uh, if you put the the top line or bottom line revenue first, you're, you're missing the opportunity. You, you really. Uh, are not seeing the
0: forest or the trees. I I definitely agree. So one thing that I remember we spoke about a long time ago is that, you know, when you find find the quality, good quality people and you surround yourself with them that you talked about finding people with specific biases that you may not have. And it was something that was, I found very interesting. I didn't quite understand it, but then when you explained it to me, it made a lot of sense. And I was wondering if you can kind of go into that.
1: Yeah, I, I believe in, in building teams. I certainly have a bias, as as everybody does. And that that bias leads you in many different directions. What I try to do is surround myself with people who bring a different bias than I may have so that I can build... A well-rounded management team that uses all of those different biases to then help us move to the next level or help us look at things in a different way I I think that um, what I see today is there there's a lot of organizations that look for the same type of person right so it's uh, you'll see a hiring process where everybody's looking for the same type of person That's the last thing I want to do. What what I want is, I want people from a wide breadth, a wide swath of experience, who bring different bias.
0: I think it makes the company stronger in the long term. You know, and I'm happy, I I agree wholeheartedly with you, and I'm happy you mentioned that. You know, one thing that we see often in the industry, at least with certain companies, is this concept of taking a a Myers-Briggs personality test, and you're supposed to have a certain personality to get in. And Essentially what you're saying is that that's, that's not a good idea in terms of innovation, would you agree? I, 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 I agree in, in
1: some ways. I think that um, what many companies have done by putting those type of psychological tests in place is they, they are looking for some similarities mm-hmm. uh, between their employees. I don't personally uh, sign up for that. That's that's not what I want. I want a varied group with a different set of skills, with a different bias, so that I can exploit every opportunity that should
0: pass in front of me. Can you give us an example of, you know, when you say biases, like can you give me an example of, you know, let's say just three people, what you mean by biases, like a bias tool to what? Um,
1: some people have a, a bias towards education some people are toward finance where, where they will uh, lead their conversations or their line of questioning based on what they're comfortable with where I want to have an opportunity to, to surround myself with people who bring in you know, a different skill set so someone may be stronger in education Or training than they are in finance or marketing or sales, and if you surround yourself with a team that has all of that, then I think you have a very
0: well-rounded team. Great. So, would you would you say that a lot of that in terms of not only looking for biases but asking the right questions to see what truly motivates a person? Your
1: questions, Omar, as you know. Questions uh, and asking appropriate questions uh, are the difference between an executive salesperson, let's say, uh, and someone who who may be very junior in their career, and the faster you get to asking the appropriate questions, I think the faster you will move forward in in your career or your responsibilities uh, within that career. I believe that framing, and if uh, everybody doesn't know what framing is, uh, framing a conversation, framing a question, how you ask that question, or how you ask the follow-up question, is as important as
0: the question itself. So... We say that learning the skill of asking not only questions, not only good questions, but the appropriate questions, the faster you learn that, the faster that you can begin to succeed and start climbing in terms of your career. If say there's a million dollars on the line and you had four weeks to train someone, to get them up to speed. What would you have them do? What things would you have them read? What videos would you have them watch? What, what comes to mind? And four weeks is a short time, but a million dollars in the line, and you have them 24-7, <laughs> four weeks.
1: That's a big question, and, and it may take us much longer than you have on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the... Give a top three. I think you have to be a student of the game. I I, I truly, more than anything else, I I believe that if you are, you know, it's the old saying about the prepared mind. If you prepare appropriately, chances are you'll do fairly well. You may not be perfect, but you'll be able to hold your own in whatever the discussion may be lack of preparation for me is is number one for for failure if you fail to prepare the old adage prepare to fail right you, you will fail so i, I believe in an, uh even today after 27 years if i'm giving a talk if i'm giving a, a speech to uh hospital board or uh, any board member something like that where it's meaningful to me i'm going to show them how much i prepared in the information that i provide in my vision statement in my mission statement whatever it happens to be i'm i'm looking for the people who are the most prepared I show up, if we have a meeting at seven o'clock, I show up at 6 a.m. to see who comes in the room first because I wanna know, are they prepared? Have they done their homework? And I ask questions of the people that I'm meeting with to understand how much they prepared for me and is there equity on how much I prepared for them. If I don't see that, I may not be so inclined to uh, have a long discussion with that party. I expect some type of reciprocation of effort, enthusiasm, vision, and preparation before I move forward with, be that a candidate for employment or, or a company we may be talking to or a hospital or anything else. I expect the same level of concern and care and preparation from them
0: as I do from myself or any of my employees. Well, you know, this one thing that's very refreshing, and I feel that a lot of the the pearls that I was fortunate enough to gain from you over the years are pieces of advice that are simple but not easy. And I think that if you wrote down what you just said and showed it to someone, someone might say that this is someone who might have just started. They're doing all this prep work and doing this and that. But it's refreshing to know that a sales executive like yourself who has been from one amazing company to another still does these same things that people in my generation need to understand that this is, this is what it takes.
1: I, I will practice, Omar, as you know and we've had many of these conversations, I will spend hours in the mirror, in my bathroom, uh, practicing my talk, my speech. What do you practice and how? So you you I I practice everything. I practice where my hands are, my body movement, how I'm standing, who I'm looking at, where my gaze may go at a certain word. I practice everything for the first 60 seconds of that speech. For the first 60 seconds? Why is that? Because I believe if you get through the first 60 seconds, the tone of that discussion is well on its way. It is traveling on its own. And from there, I don't think the same level of preparation is necessary as long as you know your material. It allows you some freedom in the the remainder of your presentation to to interact with the audience. You don't know how the questions will come from the audience. You don't know how the audience is going to respond. It allows you the freedom during that time to then re-engage, move around, uh, have the opportunity to take people on a journey of, of, of your vision. Do they share that vision? You can see it in their faces. You can see it in their eyes. Are they coming for the trip with you, or are they sitting back and they're really not engaged? So I believe that if if you know everything that you're going to say in the first 60 seconds, where you will be standing, how you will be standing, will your suit be buttoned or unbuttoned? Is this a casual situation or a very serious situation? All of those things have to be known and you have to execute it flawlessly in those first 60 seconds. Or somewhere in that first 60 seconds, you see the audience coming along with you for the ride at that moment you have the audience in your hands now you can you can be yourself you can just really start it starts to blossom like a flower and once
0: that occurs i think you're in total control of your talk very interesting you know it's uh it's unfortunate we're not videotaping this, but uh, for our listeners, I have a little uh, journal that I actually started uh, taking notes in from the time I started in Missouri, and I have a lot of, uh, we can call them, chrysellisms, <laughs> and, and some, you know, really... That might be scary. Oh, no, no, they're, no, they're, it's, it's all good. And one of the pages that I had flipped to, um, you know, talks a lot about what you just mentioned, and some of the notes that I had down... Uh, say and I, and I want you to kind of expand this and I'll read it from there things like you know, don't be distant with the crowd walk up to them and engage otherwise you're only focused on the content don't save the best for last it needs to grab people right away and make them stop and leave what they're doing and think about a great movie preview that you're seeing so why start with the good stuff? I mean, I, what, I, what we're used to hearing is always, you know, leave the best for last. Why start with the best? Well, I think that anybody
1: that leaves the best for last is prepared to fail. I believe that anybody that leaves the best for last hasn't prepared appropriately for their audience. I believe that leaving the best for last... Uh, will leave you last in, in your audience's mind So, it, Omar if I could just continue what please. I see today if I look at and not to put anybody in a box but if you look at your typical salespeople, uh, they get up in the morning I don't know when but that, that's something that's meaningful to me what, what time do you get out of bed what do you do from the time you get out of bed? Are you prepared or do you just grab your bag, get dressed in your suit or whatever you wear to work? And do you just drive to work and turn the radio on and don't really pay attention to what you're about to walk into? You're, you're unprepared. Is your, do you have your brochures or whatever you use as a sales tool? enough of those with you are you are you prepared i see so many salespeople where i will ride in the road you know on the road with them get in the car they'll pick me up at the airport those that know me know that when i get in the car they'll hand me an agenda of what we're going to do today who we're going to meet what their background is Where did they go to school? Where did they do their residency? Where did they do their fellowship? What's the last three clinical papers that they wrote or were part of? Why is that important? So all of these things come into play. I think the majority of salespeople get in the car on Monday morning, and they drive where they're going, and they're really not prepared, and they they get to where they're going, and they just sort of wing it. And then the second call of the day is is even less prepared than the first. And the, the third call and the fourth call and so on, and some people don't make that extra call at the end of the day. I didn't get to where I was by saying, oh, it's two o'clock, I've done my three meetings that I had planned, now I will go home. You will fail. You'll, you'll, you'll never reach your full potential. So, um, you know, I have a theory that if I'm out of bed, at 4.30 in the morning while the rest of the world is sleeping I will surpass everyone that's still in bed every day I do the same routine every day whether it's Monday Tuesday, Wednesday, I do the same thing on the weekend because it gives me an opportunity of uninterrupted time to concentrate on being prepared and that's what I do from 4.30am to 6am before my phone starts ringing so I have 90 minutes of quiet time where all I do is prepare for my day and anything that must be completed that's urgent.
0: Either you're very good or you went through my questions, but that's a segue to my to a question <laughs> I really want to ask. So in talking to some of the world's best performers, top sales executives, people always want to know, what's the morning routine like? So can you walk us through what you do in the morning the moment that... The alarm goes All off. the details? <laughs> as many details as you want to share. Okay. And I think it's different for everybody. But you, well, you uh, we want to know. I'm not a
1: coffee drinker, so um, I, I get out of bed at four uh, thirty. I open my computer. And what time do you go uh, to bed by the way? Um twelve thirty one AM. Got it. okay. Something like that. So up at four uh, thirty. up at four thirty. I crack a Coca-Cola, I'm a Coca-Cola drinker. I like cold things, not hot things, I don't know why. Um, But I, I get out of bed, I open my computer, I open my notebook, and I go through the list of things that I have for the day, and I tackle them one at a time based on priority of time of when those things happen. Some days things get interrupted, I may only get through the first three before I have an interruption. It's why I don't believe in offices. people used to go to offices to do work. Now they go to offices to be interrupted by other employees while they're at work and they're not really getting good work done. So I'm a big believer in that and I I like to use that time as as my quiet time. So I I open my computer, I open my notebook, I start to go through my list. I prepare for each one of those meetings, conversations, phone calls, by, by really looking at all the relevant information that I need for that particular situation. If I need to do some research, I'll do some quick research, I'll get all my information, I write it in my book, I know exactly what I'm going to say, and, and at least bullet point out every single meeting that I have for the day. Um, and that's really, that's really my basic routine every single, uh, every single morning. Once I've completed the tasks that are in my book that I know what my schedule looks like, I start to work through my my emails or follow-up that I have from the day before that I wasn't able to accomplish. And as soon as I knock those out, I move on to my first phone call of the day to my people. I check in, ask how they're doing, how much have they prepared for the day. So now I call each one of my people and we go through their level of preparation. Are they ready for their conversations? Have they done everything they needed to do to get through the day? And when that's done, it's probably uh, seven seven o'clock in the morning and from there, things don't stop. So then you're into a a typical day. and, um, And then I take, you know, I think it's very important to have time with your family. And so, you know, my wife and I, what we call courtyard time we have a courtyard in our home uh, outdoors we spend probably sixty percent of our time together out there and we each spend an hour talking about our day so she tells me about her day I tell her about my day then we spend maybe the last 30 to 40 minutes strategizing on other things in our lives of what we have to do. It's a, it's a beautiful relationship. We have this, uh, you know, we, we have a relationship that is um, beyond anything I've ever experienced before. We have a, just a clear understanding of what we both want and how we want it to look. So a, a vision of our lives, I guess. And, and we prepare for our life the same way that we we do for business. We're we're really prepared for everything. That's probably my biggest message. Is to be prepared. No matter what you're doing. If if my wife and I are going on on a trip, we're we're prepared. If we're going
0: shopping, we're prepared. So let me ask you this. One of the one of the difficult things to do, I guess, when you're when you're an ambitious, you know, type A personality person, you're driven. You always want to be prepared. Sometimes you get stuck on the pitfall of perfect. So, when do you know when good enough is good enough, and you don't get stuck on that? Good, good enough is never good enough.
1: I, I, I don't believe that. Uh... The human mind or the human spirit can can ever accept good enough I I also don't expect perfection I want people to learn by success, I want people to learn by failure Uh, I I like people to I don't want to say I like people to fail, but certainly there's a, a poignant lesson in failing as long as you get back up, dust yourself off and get back to the task at hand
0: when it comes to failing, what was the most memorable failure you ever had, and how did that change you as a person, as a professional? Um, for,
1: you know, not to get into detail, I would say the, the biggest failure that I've had business wise uh, was, was not paying attention to the details. Earlier on in my career, which which gave me a, a great lesson, and I said I would never let it happen again. I let things happen around me instead of really being prepared and controlling what was happening around me. And because I was young, thought that was good enough. Uh, those type of things, and and allowed uh, allowed things to happen uh, around me that. I just wasn't aware of uh, of what was happening because I wasn't paying attention to the details, and the devil is in the details. As I think everybody
0: knows. Absolutely. Couple couple last questions again. Thank you for taking time to sit with us. My pleasure. So these are kind of quick, rapid fire ones. You can take as long as you want. So first one's an easy one. If you were to recommend three three books to somebody three books that had an impact on you in terms of not only your sales career, but your professional career, your personal life, your self-development. What what comes to mind? Now, unfortunately, the interview cut short because, uh, well, I didn't know much about podcasting back then. So my phone actually got a call and uh, it turned off the recording. But uh, the interview did wrap up there because we had to get back to the booth. But I do remember the books that cells recommended and it was in this order. So number one was Crossing the Chasm by Jeff Moore. Now Crossing the Chasm is a book that was in a way kind of handed, handed down to me and a lot of the early class at uh, Mazur from uh, the, the people who spent their time at Intuitive Surgical. It, it's a book about technology adoption and the technology adoption curve. I'm sure many of you may have heard of uh, early adopters early majority late majority pioneers and of course the crossing of the chasm and it really comes from this book uh, it was a fantastic book it, it made a tremendous impact on my career and the way I think about business and of course taking disruptive technologies to market and I know that it will do the same for you now the second book as mentioned in the interview sells a big believer in people and he always told me you know go go to where the people are, go to, go to places where there are great people. And, uh, the next book is called Gung Ho, turn on the people in any organization by Ken Blanchard and Sheldon Bowles. And, uh, this book is a fantastic book because it, it really tells you how you can develop a, a really fantastic culture, uh, no matter what the organization. And I think that sells, uh, had it deeply ingrained in his mind and kind of did it uh, out of habit. What this book talks about, which is explaining to people, you know, what their contribution is to the organization, what the true north was for, for everyone, and how to get mo- not only alignment, but get a group of people from a diverse set of backgrounds, skill sets, um, and training, and get them aligned in a way that they all are engaged, excited and bring the best versions of themselves to work. And the last book was uh, the classic, Spin Selling, by Neil Rockman, Spin standing for Situation, Problem, Implication, Need, Payoff. Um, when I started in Missouri, I was a med student, I was formerly a med student, so I knew very little about sales, uh, and by very little I mean nothing. And Sells gave me this, you know, book to start with to start giving me a framework. The one thing that he always encouraged everybody, he said, always be a student of the game. Always, always be a student of the game. So those are his book recommendations. And lastly, I would like to share some quotes and wisdom from Cells uh, on a variety of topics I've collected uh, from all our colleagues and of course, from the various notebooks that I kept from him. So on a section uh entitled sales and marketing here are his quotes number one and of course in no particular order every time you're about to rattle off a feature ask two more questions get deeper you're not selling features and benefits you're selling a vision if it's a 7 a.m meeting with a prospective customer i'll show up at 6 a.m i want to see who comes in where they sit did they prepare for me because I prepared for them and I expect a certain level of interest and respect otherwise we're not moving forward. Now, On marketing he says marketing is about values who are we and where do we fit in this world? And further to that point it's a noisy world out there and we're not gonna get a chance to get people to remember much about us so we have to be clear about what we want them to know about us. When dealing with surgeons, uh, he would always encourage the sales teams to ask the surgeon about their vision, help them get there. And of course, that's by asking very specific and thoughtful questions. Um, When we were going through a tough time at Mazur and we were trying to uh, push the value uh, of what we were delivering, He said, when you begin answering on the facts, you start reporting the news instead of being the news. We must be the historians rather than the history. Own the narrative. And of course, uh, more so to that point, when it comes to messaging, sales would always say, every word matters when you use less of them. If you're not excited about your product, nobody else will be. And finally, on the sales and marketing section, and I think a lot of people appreciate this, clinical cells capital not the other way around and I think the big message from that is the importance for medical device companies to have strong clinical foundation not only in their technology but also in their studies and more importantly clinically sound people and I can tell you especially coming out of medical school the people who were trained in Missouri were probably the most clinically sound people I've ever worked with in my life uh, and a great majority of that I have to credit to uh, not only Sells, but more specifically Robert Breedlove and Matt Afshari who were a big uh, reason why so many of us were, were so strong clinically in our training. Now on the topic of presenting, Sells uh, would say, if you fail to prepare, prepare to fail, as he says in the interview. Um, when presenting, he, he encourages you to not be distant from the crowd. Walk up to them, engage them. Otherwise, you're only focused on the content. This is a big piece that uh, had a, had an impact on my career, and, and especially for me, I'm I've become somewhat of a public speaker, um, and I learned the importance of taking a couple steps forward into and towards the crowd to speak to them. Otherwise, if you don't, you're very you're standing back and hiding behind a podium in your content. And lastly, and this is a really. Uh, really interesting thing that he once told me, and it changed the way I present, not only in my company, but also when I have to help uh, my CEO do pitch presentations or anything else. Don't save the best for last. It needs to grab people right away and make them stop what they're doing like a great movie premiere. And as Sales mentioned in the interview earlier, um, if you save the best for last, then you're going to be last in the customer's mind, right? Now, on products, Product was an important thing because, you know, especially uh, taking surgical robotic technology to the market, the product had to be good. But unfortunately, every product's an ugly baby when it starts. So here are the quotes on product You know that you succeeded not by the product being delivered, but by customers buying, using, and loving it. Couldn't agree more. Uh, another quote Technology is born ugly. And I think this is a very important piece to note here, which is, Most of the time when you start in a company, the technology is always going to be ugly, right? And you have to come to terms with that in order to improve it. Otherwise, you're blinding yourself and looking to not improve the product. And anytime something goes wrong, you usually credit it to being user error. A quick sip of my coffee. Dead unused systems kill the markets. Now, what does that mean for those of you who are not a med device? What that means... Is that if you sell capital equipment into a market and that capital equipment just sits there and does not get used, aka a dead system, it will kill your market. Because if you put a piece of capital equipment technology in a hospital, or really any industry, right, and it's not used, then word of that gets around and low utilization also translates to low adoption rates. Next quote. What happens in every company is people are unrealistic. If the robot is going to stand on its own, it better be able to effing dance. (laughs) And I think the big part of this is that, you know, especially in the early days of surgical robotics, there were such high expectations of the robot doing just all kinds of crazy things. And it was important to be grounded to sell a vision, but more importantly, uh, be realistic with the customer about the capabilities of the system, right? And lastly, um, when, uh, actually when I was trying to interview to be a product manager, and this is actually how I got into marketing, he said, own the roadmap. The problem is that everyone will try and take the map, sales, R and D, etc but you have to keep everyone on point and aligned. Now, for those of you who are coming out of college and, and, uh, perhaps interviewing those of you who may be late in your career and starting to interview new jobs, here's a section on interviewing, uh. A question to ask is, what part of my background interests you, interests you the most? What one thing stood out that made you want to call me? Um, I think uh, the important part of that about this, and this is why Sells uh, talks about this, is that when you get the person who is interviewing you to talk about the things that stood out and you know why they called you, two things happen. Number one, you get the person to focus on a positive attribute of you right and by having to explain that you're getting that person to sell themselves on you the second thing is you actually get information because now you know what's important in their mind versus trying to guess none of us can mind read so if you go to an interview and ask what's what what about my background interests you the most what's one thing that stood out if they let's say you're interviewing for a sales position if they default to oh you have uh, experience in this specific industry, let's say it's uh, cardiac, uh, structural heart devices, then you know that's what they're interested in. If they say perhaps, well, we saw that you're a three or four time President's Club winner, et cetera, then now you know that it doesn't matter the uh, device or industry, they wanna see that you're um, an all-star. Now continuing on that path, um, some other questions is to ask is, how do you do things here in your company? What's your experience been? This is a great way to get insight on the culture of a company and the way uh, things are usually done. Um, another question, where and how do I fit on the team? Now, this is important because it may not seem so obvious. You know, If you're interviewing for, let's say, a marketing manager position, then you might say, oh, well, it's a position on the marketing team. I'm going to report to this person. But when you ask where and how do I fit on the team, it lets the other person describe their point of view, their version, right? Their bias, okay? And Sells was a master of this. He was always incredibly curious about what biases other people had. What did their other, what did they think about something? Why Why do they think about it a certain way? And no matter what, I mean Sells, he was um, in his late 50s when he passed, he was so aggressively curious. He always asked questions. And so I think by doing that, the more questions you ask, and of course, thoughtful questions, the more information you get, the better prepared you'll be. And then finally, ask, "What does a win look like?" Right? This is a question not only do I ask in interviews, but I also ask of physicians. You know, when I'm uh, trying to uh, negotiate or let's say talk to them about adopting a technology, right? Because when you start to understand what winning looks like for another person, what's important to them, they're going to tell you exactly what you need to do. Right, that's the key here. No matter how smart you are, how experienced you are, how accomplished you are, you will make mistakes when you start jumping to assumptions and pretending you can mind read. And that was something that Cells did not do. He always asked, you always, ask, always figured it out and, and found or more importantly, went about finding out. Um now, section on career development. Make the right choice for your career, otherwise it'll come back and haunt you. That's a mistake that can take you ten years to come back from. Now when he told me this it was it was a little bit um, more specific to me but I think the, the thing about that was when you talk when you think about your career you have to be intentional about it which means in your 20s it's important to you know get experience take on a lot of responsibility but as you grow through your career you have to you have to make intentional decisions right you have to think how is this going to impact me if I start this job with these responsibilities and this company, how is this going to impact my career trajectory? When I leave this job, how do I leave? What do I say? How do I go about doing it? Because everything you do, in, in some ways, is a small moment of time and it will go away. But in other ways, it can and will influence your career. So you have to be intentional about these things. Another point that Sells would say is focus not on what you know, but what you can learn. This was probably the most empowering thing that he had told me, um, because coming out of medical school and not having any background in marketing, you know, my confidence was low. And I think this is something that he always uh, empowered so many people behind, because at Mazur, we hired a lot of people who never worked in medical devices, never worked in sales. But that company uh, was the first uh, robotic spine uh, company in the world, and now there's maybe eight or nine uh, it and eventually ended up getting acquired for by Medtronic which is the world's largest uh, medical device company and it's their flagship technology right now right and I think a big part of that the success of Mazur is that he empowered people not to worry about what they knew at that moment but what they can learn and we had very aggressive curious learners at Mazor. that's what made us successful and then lastly when you leave an organization what's the story that you leave the people with now me personally um, I learned I learned this over time that no matter what your feelings are when you leave an organization even if it's bad you have to assume that you're gonna be back in somebody's neighborhood again So you always leave uh, on a good note a high note if you can Um, that doesn't mean that you don't do not speak the truth but there's a way of speaking the truth so that you can gain respect and leave uh, with power and energy and not as a disgruntled employee trying to just one-up somebody before you leave. Um, now we have a couple more sections. So finally, on leadership, people have problems, leaders find solutions. I really love this because, again, early on in your career, uh, this and I'm speaking for myself as well, it's very easy to focus on what's wrong, what, what the problem is, etc., What's harder is to take responsibility and look for solutions. And, and early in my career, that was one thing that Sells did. You know, When I had problems and, of course, I was complaining about different things, he really kicked me in my ass and said, people have problems, Khatib, leaders find solutions. And it empowered me to go and find the solutions. Right. Um, Next quote, in your career, at every step you take, determine who you want to take with you to the next step, the next opportunity. It's about the team you build, not the company or the product you join. Completely agree. Completely agree. And it took me a while to understand this, that you know, business is hard, and especially when you're in uh, medical devices and you're in a startup. It's even harder. You go through a lot of tough times. And so you want to make sure that the people that are in the trenches with you are the right people and they're good people. Uh, next quote: Do not yield to complacency. Be vigilant. Biggest thing with sales is is, and he said this when I first started. Uh, many of us started as clinical sales reps in the sur- in the surgical OR. Is that mistakes in the OR happen the moment you get comfortable, right? Uh, next qu- next quote: If you're in the quote disruption industry, you better get used to issues. Man, do I love that, and it's true. Because if you're in the industry and the business of disrupting things, right, taking a disruptive technology to market and elevating and challenging the status quo, you got to get used to problems, you got to get used to issues, you got to have thick skin. That's the only way. Do it again. (laughs) Now, many of those of you who never worked with Stills wouldn't know what that means. But his thing was repetition. Repetition is the mother of wisdom and Anytime you do a pitch, anytime you would uh, practice a um, role play, anytime you do anything, his thing was great. Do it again, do it again, do it again. Next one is a funny one. Uh, Whenever we would go and do uh, presentations on deals, and let's say a deal went bad, sales would say, suck it up, buttercup, next person up. right. And sometimes, you know, that's why he was so successful. He had the power of positive thinking behind him, right? Um, Now, another one uh, is not exactly a quote on leadership, but something that he told me and I continue to use with a lot of uh, younger people that I mentor, and I know that he's told this to others. Go make your mark. I'm very proud of you, and I'm always here if you need an ear. And you you, will never, you can never underestimate how powerful and how meaningful those words are to somebody. Um, to him, it, it was probably something, just a simple phrase. It cost him nothing to say, it, but it, it meant the world to me and every other person he's told that to. Um, next quote. The thing often lost along the journey of any company is the story. And that's very true. When you get busy with business, you you lose a story. So you have to find ways to capture it. And the nice thing is that with social media, it makes it easier to do that with uh, videos, photos. And it's really nice to go back over time and see how the company grew and the culture evolved. Now, last section is on the team. And I'm going to leave you guys with a very uh, nice ending, which is his... Uh, 10 disruptive technology rules for early stage leaders. So uh, on the team, be the spark that starts the fire, fan the flames and together we will bring the heat. Next quote, people will take you far, the technology can only take you so far. Next quote, if you're the smartest person in the room, you haven't hired the right people. That's a good one for all you hiring managers out there, think about that. Next quote, As I have often mentioned, people are the fuel that power the rocket. All products are introduced, sold, nurtured, and developed by people. The human spirit is the catalyst for growth. Lead, develop, and care for your people. And in return, they will give you all they have to offer. The recipe is easy. People first. And lastly, and God do I love this quote. When hiring people, you have to ask, Could you be stuck at the Detroit airport for eight hours plus during a snowstorm so you can't leave and still want to hang out with this person? If they pass the DAT test, the Detroit airport test, then it's the right fit. Invite them into the family. And finally, I have come to the end and this is his 10 Disruptive Technology Rules for Early-Stage Leaders. I've, I, I really was on sales constantly about posting more on LinkedIn and sharing his knowledge, and he did, and I'm very grateful for it. He's written a few articles, which I recommend going and, and reading. But in a one post, he wrote this uh, these 10 rules, and it's amazing how profound they are. So here we go. Number one, extreme product competence. Number two, extreme application competence number three all rowing in the same direction number four high communication dashboards metrics kpis number five deliver results number six don't believe so much that you stop paying attention to critical feedback the customer is everything listen number seven the baby is ugly but don't wait until it's too pretty or you will miss the market but do acknowledge that in reality your baby is ugly Number eight, razor blade model improves valuation two times, and this will help drive adoption. That's more specific to medical devices with regards to disposables, by the way. Number nine, do more with less. Number 10, you will only travel as far as your people are willing to carry you. And lastly, he writes, you can value this list in either direction. Top to bottom, bottom to top, you will always meet at number five, deliver results. As I've spent the last 20-plus years in medical device startup world, this simple recipe has served me well. Good selling, Chris Sells. And with that, my dear friends, I hope you've enjoyed uh, this podcast. Share it. Share it with young professionals, with old professionals. Uh, Bookmark it so you can listen to it again because I promise you, the wisdom in this, po- in this one interview, it will change you if you let it. As always, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you again for tuning in to this week's episode of The Mind Loom. For questions that you'd like to submit, please email mindloomboom at gmail.com. That's mindloomboom at gmail.com.